all these so computers still. around here. I know, so many. <laughs> We're so technical. <laughs> so techie here. <laughs> we do kind of look techie with the headphones. I think so. Yeah. Mm. I think so. Um, well, first and foremost, let's cheers. Oh. Cheers. Cheers. Yay. Welcome to Cocktails and Conspiracies, where we're going to have a little drink and talk about conspiracies. Yeah, this is a little different episode today. Yeah. We're doing... It's our Freaky Friday, where... Freaky Friday. going to freak you out. Happy weekend. (laughs) Okay, should I talk about what I'm drinking? Totally. It's so good. Yeah. So, I got this strawberry lemonade Svetka. I've had it for so long. It was actually all I had, <laughs> so I brought it over and um, just mixed it with a little lemonade and put a couple of strawberries in, and it's really good. I really like it. So yeah, it's delish. Love that. Just Tito's and Topo Chico today, just real harsh vodka taste in my mouth, so uh, that's yeah. always how I like it. Yeah. <laughs> so, a little out of it, I'm trying to pep up for us because I spent... Literally four hours. I know you look so relaxed. Uh, at the spa today. Relaxation looks really good on you. Thanks. Yeah. I, I feel crazy. Yeah. But I feel good. Like every time you get a massage and then you just like, they wake you up kind of like, all oh, right. And they usher you out. They're like, here's some water. Get the Bye. fuck out. Yep. And you're like, oh my God. Like, wait, I am crazy right now. I'm sorry. I can't see. Oh, yeah, for sure. So the Houstonia saw has, you know, that tranquility room where they have, like, I don't know, like, seven or eight of those huge, like, deep chase lounges with, like, a blanket and pillows, and it's, like, that fireplace and, like, the water sounds. Hardcore took a nap and may or may not have drooled a little bit on the Houstonian spa pillows. So, sorry. Yeah, sorry. It woke me up because I was worried about doing that. And the second I did it, I was like... Just so relaxed. You can't even close your mouth. What an amazing experience. <laughs> <It's so good. laughs> I yeah, love it. So. We went to IPIC oh, cool. on Friday. And we I've saw, only gone once. Oh, what was that movie called? Um, Operation Finale, the World War II movie. It's basically about like Hitler's counterpart getting away. And Aww. it's based on a true story. Oh. And it was really, really good. And oh, like we had who's in it? I don't. I'm so bad with this. Is this He's, a funny, funny movie? It's not funny at all. Oh. It's very serious. It's very drama. What is it called? It's called Operation Finale. Oh yes, thank you. Help me out, sister. Oh for sure, you got you. Oscar Isaac, Ben Kingsley, Nick Kroll's in there. But those are really the only ones I know. Yeah, I was really good. Yeah, cool. I highly no, recommend. I them. love that I pick. Oh. My, I'm never going back to another movie but theater. But it's so hard because they get sold out so fast. Like oh, the is actual, that the, thing? the good ones, like with the like the two seater ones where you can like recline back and stuff. Yeah, I've been trying to go. I've only gone once, and I've I've been trying to get Tracy to go with me. But like every time, we kind of feel like, oh, maybe this weekend we should go see a movie, or there's something that we actually want to see. They're literally like filled up. Damn, I didn't I even realize that. Um, I think we got our tickets like on Monday or Tuesday, so we planned ahead for sure. But yeah, you have to. That theater was amazing. I know. I had the best experience. It changes. I mean, the fact that you can I got so wasted. Oh, 100%. And their their food's good. Their restaurant in there is actually good. We just had popcorn and then martinis. Mm-hmm. They have blue cheese stuffed olives. Oh, Love hell it. Oh, yeah. And they're good. It's like the real blue cheese. They hand do it. 
I love that. Yeah. Do you remember that night when after yes. we saw my favorite murder? Yes, downtown in November. We went to this at like last November. It's almost been a year, but we went to the live podcast of my favorite murder. And we went out afterwards, and we went to this bar that didn't have blue cheese stuffed olives, but the bartender, like, literally handmade them for us he at was the, the bar. Best. What, was it Lawless? <laughs> yeah, it was, was Lawless. Was the bar? Yeah. Lawless Love will. You, Lawless. Love y'all. Like, and they handmake their own blue cheese stuffed just olives. Just customer per service. Request. Per right. request. They don't supply them. But no. if you really ask hard enough. And very nicely. Very nicely. They will just, like, sit there and, like, stuff it for you. Yeah, that guy was great. <laughs> And that is where this podcast was born. Literally it was. that night. Oh my god, that night. That How night we funny. got really drunk on martinis and got so inspired by my favorite murder. Weird shit. Yeah. <laughs> this is that born out of you know, martinis wow. and inspiration from So crazy. I know. Oh my gosh. So crazy. Look at us now. So no, I liked what usually Freaky Fridays for us would be just we don't even tell each other what we're going to do. We just bring, like, a weird-ass story. Like, so you had suggested, like, let's do a theme. We still don't know what we're going to bring, but our our theme this week was crazy disappearances. Yeah, dun-dun-dun. I'll go first because okay. I have never heard of yours, and I know okay. you've heard of mine Okay. whenever you first got here. So I'll, I'll blow through this because I can't wait to hear. I don't know what, that, what yours is. So Ooh, mine, okay. I'm going to cover... The Disappearance of D.B. Cooper. So, on Thanksgiving Eve, November 24th, 1971, a middle-aged man carrying a black attic... Oh, shit. I never say this word. Did you hear me really try to, like, tell a bedtime story? Thanks. Amazing. Don't let that, whatever that word is, mess you up. Attaché? (laughs) Attaché? It's like that, you know, like... Isn't it attaché? It's like the toiletry case, but it's like the fancy leather... Attaché? Attaché. Touché. Attaché. 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 Touche. That's got to be okay. how you say it. Okay, so black attaché case. So he was just carrying it like a, it's like, like a I think it's like a I think it's like a briefcase type thing. Why don't they just call it a briefcase? I don't know. Um, he, okay, approached the flight counter of Northwest Orient Airlines at Portland International Airport. He identified himself as Dan Cooper. And, of course, this is, like, back in the 70s where literally you could just go up and say, Hi, I'm Bozo the Clown. I don't want to get on this airline. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, All right, here you okay. go, <laughs> Mr. Bozo, thanks for joining us here at Portland International. So Enjoy silly. your flight. Honk, honk. <laughs> I love it. So, you know, he's like, Hey, I'm Dan Cooper. I want to go on this flight. He used cash to purchase a one-way ticket on flight 305, a 30-minute trip north to Seattle. Um, He boarded the aircraft, took a seat, they say, in 18C, 18E by one account, 15D by another, but whatever. It's in the middle. It's in the rear. Is that the the back? I don't know. Okay. Here's it's a Boeing 727-100. So for all you airline freaks out there that know like what their <laughs> airplanes look like, because they're all you airline freaks out there. Because <laughs> like I've been around people, they're like, "Oh, what plane is this?" Like, "Oh, it's oh. da da Like, I don't know, no clue, no clue. whatever. No clue. Okay, is it big or is it small? Um, so who knows? Maybe that was the middle. Maybe that was the rear. Um, he lit a cigarette, ordered a bourbon and soda. And just sat back and relaxed, ready to enjoy his flight. So cool. 
Fellow passengers described him as a man in his mid-40s, between 5 foot 10 and 6 feet, just kind of run out of the mill. Mm-hmm. He wore a black lightweight raincoat, loafers, a dark suit, a neatly pressed white collared shirt, a black clip-on tie, and a mother-of-pearl tie pin. Okay. So, basically, like shortly right after takeoff, he, this man handed a note to Florence Schaffner, the flight attendant situated nearest to him in a jump seat. She assumed that the note contained a lonely man, a lonely businessman's phone number. Oh wow! And dropped it unopened in her purse. Uh, mm-hmm. She was like, oh, "We've all been there." Like, yeah. All right, yeah, nice try. Do I do? All right. I'm not gonna look this. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so he leaned towards her and he whispered, "Miss, you'd better look at that note. I have a bomb." Oh fuck! Yeah. The note was printed in neat, all capital letters with a felt tip pen. Its exact wording is unknown because he later, like, reclaimed it. Like, he got it back from her. Schaffner recalled that the note said that Cooper had a bomb in his briefcase. After she read the note, he made her sit beside him. I would be freaking <gasps> fuck out. Oh, my God. Could you imagine, like, no. being told, like, hey, I have a bomb. You better sit down sit next down to me. Sit down right next I'm like, to oh, me. I'm the first to go. Yeah. Like, fuck. Oh, my God. I, I, I couldn't do that. I couldn't do that. Uh, and you're on a plane. Like, what are you going to do? No. And she, but she was like, she quietly asked to see the bomb. Like, oh, I would have never done so that. So smart. I was like, oh. <laughs> you do? <laughs> oh, my God, no. I believe you 110%. Yeah. yeah. No questions asked. All right. Yeah, absolutely wow. not. So, so she asked, like, quietly to see it. He opened his briefcase long enough for her to glimpse eight red cylinders, uh, four on top of four, like stacked, I guess, attached to wires coated with red insulation and a large cylindrical battery. Okay, so he saw, he actually did have a bomb. What looks like bomb. Okay. Who knows? Yeah, that's true. Right? Okay. Um, After he showed her, he closed the briefcase and he said that he wanted $200,000 in negotiable American currency. Four parachutes, two primary and two reserve, and a fuel truck standing by in Seattle to refuel the aircraft upon arrival. Um, she So then she goes and tells the pilots in the cockpit about what the hell is going on and the instructions. And when she returned, he was wearing, he put on like dark sunglasses. I, that's important because there's a pretty, very, very famous like FBI wanted poster, or like a drawing. Yeah, we'll put it on and Instagram. It's, yeah, it's super famous. Like, him and those black sunglasses and his raincoat. Mm-hmm. Well, who he literally looks like every man in the world. <laughs> yeah, there is nothing distinctive whatsoever. Good luck. So the pilot William Scott, he contacted air traffic control. They informed local and federal authorities. There was thirty six other passengers on the plane. The plane was only like a third full. Um, they were giving false information that their arrival in Seattle would be delayed because of a minor mechanical difficulty. Whenever I read that, I was like, okay, how many times do you think that has actually happened? Like passengers getting like, cause I, we, I, I fly all the time and I'm like, how often are we getting false information? Like, I never really know what's like going on, especially like with bad turbulence or something. The pilot's like, no big deal. It's cool. Just we're going to go into, you know, they talk, we're tar- going into turbulence. No worries. Just follow up. Was wow, that good? That was so good. Oh, I didn't know how that was going to come that out. I was great. taking a stab. I was taking a risk. That sounded fantastic. <laughs> and 
I'm like, no way. This plane is about to like fall apart. Like, I wonder if they just like kind of say that to you. Well, yeah, I think so. But I don't, I think that flying is just really safe and you don't really have to worry about that. I mean, I don't know. I'm a terrible flyer. Yeah. It sounds like a terrible flyer. Oh my God. (laughs) Exactly. So anyways. Oh my God. So. Um, and then they, uh, and then the Northwest, or- Northwest Orient, the uh, airline's president, um, authorized payment of the ransom and ordered all employees to cooperate fully with the hijackers' demands. So, and actually, so today, in today's money, like that $200,000 would be like $1.2 million. Damn. Um, so. So he got on the plane, demanded. Pay- yes. And then. How did they have the money? Did they have the, the airline? Just airline. They money. had it with them on the plane. No, they were gonna wire like have it for him when they landed. Okay, so th- he was informed that his demands had been met, and at like five forty, the aircraft landed at Seattle. Um, it was more than an hour after sunset, and DB Cooper instructed the t- uh, to taxi the jet to an isolated, brightly lit section of the tarmac and close each window shades in the cabin to deter police snipers. So Fuck. he, like, had it going on. Like, he knew what was happening. Um, so one of the uh, airline's uh, Seattle operations managers, Al Lee, approached the aircraft in street clothes to avoid the possibility that Cooper might mistake his airline uniform for that of a police officer. He, in- he delivered the cash-filled knapsack and parachutes um, and once that was completed, he, Cooper ordered all passengers, Sh- uh, Schaffner, the original flight attendant, and senior flight attendant to leave the plane. So during refueling, he outlined his pl- flight plan to the cockpit crew. Um, he, they wanted, he wanted to go to Mexico City um, at the minimum airspeed possible without stalling the aircraft. So he's doing all of this like he's, with a bomb and saying, if you don't... I do what I say. Detonate it. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, like, he had, like, the very specific things. Like, I don't know what any of this means, but I'm going to read it out loud. Um, so, minimum airspeed possible at a maximum of 10,000 foot altitude. He further specified that the landing gear remained deployed in the takeoff landing position. Like, so... They could, he could get out and get get in, get out. So basically, he, the like they're flying before with it gets the too wheels. high. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the wing flaps be lowered 15 degrees. Don't know what that would do. And the cabin remain unpressurized. So I don't know. This guy had like this plan. He knew. Yeah. Like the logistics behind yes. what he was so doing. So back in the after refueling after takeoff, Cooper told. Um, the pilot to join the rest. Oh, no, no, this isn't the pilot. This is the main flight attendant. Um, join the rest of the crew in the cockpit and remain there with the door closed. She observed him tying something around his waist. Cooper was tying something around his waist. Um, approximately 20 minutes after that, a warning light flashed in the cockpit, indicating that the aft air stair apparatus had been activated. What's so that? that's the back. <clears throat> like the, the back window the back or the, the back like, door? Yeah. It like goes down like some stairs. Like if you had to load anything like luggage and stuff in the back. So the light came on saying like that was open. So he just like jumped out of it? Uh-huh. And then um, they also noticed a subjective change of air pressure indicating that the aft door was open. About 15 minutes after that, 
The aircraft's tail section sustained a sudden upward movement significant enough to require, like, what's called trimming, who knows, whatever, flight people, to bring the plane back to level flight. Then, like, two hours later, the aft air stair was still deployed when they finally landed in Nevada. FBI agents, state troopers, sheriff deputies, and Reno police surrounded the jet as it had not yet been determined with certainty that Cooper was no longer aboard, but he wasn't. So he jumped out of the fucking plane. Yeah. So they they uncovered, like, about 66 different fingerprints um, aboard the airliner. They found his black clip-on tie and his tie clip and two of the four parachutes one of which Flip had on been tie yeah remember that's what i was wearing mm-hmm. yeah i don't know man i don't know who Come wears on, that DB. those are like babies those are for like your toddlers like or like a costume sure like put on a real tie yeah. um <clears throat> uh one of which one of the parachutes had been open and two line suspension lines cut from its canopy so what's that suspension lines yeah like the parachute suspension lines. Oh, okay. i don't know why it was cutting it all up but <clears throat> So, basically, after he exited the rear steps of the aircraft, he took the ransom money and literally was never seen again. So, what the fuck? in spite of an extensive manhunt by the FBI, the hijacker has never been located or identified. And the Bureau's investigators think he probably did not survive his jump from the aircraft. However, his remains, his remains have never been found. I read somewhere if he hadn't survived, if he died jumping out of the plane, yeah. which is what a lot of people think it, what really what happened, happened, they would have 100% found his remains. And that's like, the they're mystery because they haven't over found his bodies remains. of water. Like, exactly. I know. So, so crazy. Nevertheless, they, they kept this manhunt going, investigation going for 45 years after the high chip hijacking and it remains the only unsolved case of air piracy in commercial aviation history so one of the last thing i'm going to say like the aftermath of all of this like that hijacking was the beginning of the end to that like you know burp, 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 just gotta get on this plane yeah. with my gal the good old days i gone so um damn yeah so that like that was the beginning of the end of unfettered and unscrutinized commercial airline travel (laughs) so but despite like so the year before they had tried this like sky marshal program but 31 hijackings were committed in u.s airspace in 1972 19 of them were for the specific purpose of extorting money and most of the rest were attempts to reach Cuba. <laughs> what? Yeah. So this was like a thing, a common like, thing. Like, yeah. So this guy, like, yeah. Kind of started it? 31 hijackings. So it was Thanksgiving of 1971. So like the end of okay. 1971. And then in 1972, there was like 31 hijackings. Oh my God. Yeah, it's insane. Setting a trend. Yeah. GB, the trendsetter. Um, and then in 15 of those extortion cases, the hijackers also demanded parachutes. So that Just copying him. I know. So then in like nineteen seventy three they began requiring airlines to search all passengers in their bags, like TSA. Oh, they never even searched no. bags. Wow. I know you can just skip up right to the airport, like that's crazy. Yeah. To think that. Oh my god. There you go. If anyone knows where Dan Cooper is, please email us at Tessie and McDub at gmail.com. <laughs> 
great story, McDad. I know. It's pretty good. Okay, are you ready for my freaky yes, Friday story? My I don't disappearance know this at story? All. Oh, really? And I feel I'm like surprised. I know a lot I of I feel stuff. like you do, but I don't know. It's a story about the okay. missing solder children. Okay, I can't wait. Okay. The year is 1945. Um, there's a couple, George and Jenny, along with their 10 children, live in a two story house in Fayetteville, West Virginia. One of the kids <clears throat> was out fighting a war. Both of them were Italian immigrants, and George was particularly known for his strong opposition against Italian dictator Bentino Mussolini. Mm-hmm. So just keep that kind of in the back okay, of your mind. That's important. Okay. On the 24th of December, so Christmas Eve, mm-hmm. Maurice, Martha, Louise, Jenny, and Betty asked their mom. So, okay, so how their house was set up, like the older kids kind of stayed downstairs and all the little kids shared two bedrooms upstairs in the attic. Okay. And so there were five kids that were, I think, under the age of 14 that mm-hmm. all lived upstairs. Mm-hmm. So if They're small. You can cram them in. Yeah. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> um, so on Christmas Eve, the little kids that lived upstairs, they asked their mom if they could stay up a little late to play with their new toys. So I guess they had open presents, and one of the older kids had gotten them, like, a lot a lot of toys. Her name was Marion. Uh, and then she was like, sure, yeah, y'all can play with your toys. Just go upstairs. But remember to turn off the lights and to lock the door, because this was back in the – this was in the 40s. So I guess this is when you locked your attic. All right. Yeah. Lock yourselves in. Okay, got it. <laughs> So George, the father, and the two oldest sons, John and George Jr., were already asleep downstairs. Okay. <clears throat> um, around 12.30 a.m. on Christmas Day, the phone rang. Jenny, the mom, wakes up and picks up the call, but she hears something really weird on the other side. It's like this evil lady laughing. Ooh. And then um, she also hears, like, glasses clinking. So she assumes that this is, like, a the wrong number or whatever and hangs up. Um, and then when she does that, she notices that the lights are on. The babies or the little kids never turn the lights off like she said to. Yeah. So she wakes up and she goes and turns off the light and I guess locks the attic. Um, so she checked on her other kids downstairs and saw that Marion, the oldest that gave the kids all the toys, she was sleeping on the couch. She was supposed to be looking after the kids. So she, I guess she assumes that everyone's asleep. Yeah. Um, so, yes, assuming that the other children were in the attic they, where they slept, she had forgotten to lock the door. She locked it up. She went to sleep. Around 1 a.m., so this is like 30 minutes later, there was a loud bang uh, heard by Jenny as if something hit the roof. Is so Jenny loud, the mom? Jenny's the mom. Okay. A loud bang on the roof. Hearing nothing again, she's just like, oh, I guess that was whatever. I don't, I don't even know what that would be, but yeah. you're tired. You're half asleep. She goes yeah. back to sleep. 30 minutes later, around 1.30 a.m., she wakes up to the smell of smoke. So she finds that the smoke's coming from the fire in the office where the fuse box and the telephone wires were being kept. So it's in the office somewhere in her house, right? She wakes up her husband, and they escape the house along with Sylvia, John, George Jr., and Marion, who was asleep on the couch downstairs. And those are the oldest ones. Mm -hmm. Well, Sylvia's the baby. She's like two years old, but I guess she was sleeping with with them or something, yeah. And so they were they were yelling at their kids, like, everyone come go outside. But after coming out, they noticed that the kids, the children staying upstairs, were nowhere to be found. And there was five of them. So Marion ran to the neighbor's house to call the fire department. But the operator didn't respond. 
And when a different neighbor attempted to call, she got no response from the operator. So the operator was like nowhere to be found, Just, which is really it's Christmas. odd. Fuck it. Yeah. Yeah. I, you, they expect on holiday. me to answer the phone on Christmas. Yeah. I'm um, no. Maybe this was before overtime. Like, overtime pay? Yeah. So, everyone was just pissed. For Um, 40s, who knows? (laughs) So, that same neighbor actually drives to town and finds the fire chief. His name's F.J. Morris. And the fire department is two and a half miles away from the house. Takes them seven hours to get to the house. What? And by the time they arrive, the house is literally in ashes. Yeah, so this fire department fucking sucks. So the family just, like, standing, like, you know, tearing out their hair in their yard? Like, mm-hmm. wait, that doesn't make... Did, that, so, <sighs> authorities are looking all over the ashes. They're looking for the remains of the five solder children, right? Nothing's found. And so um, the fire chief was like, well, you know what? It w- they probably just burned. Like, they're probably all part of these ashes. So the mother, Jenny, starts doing these tests at home. And starts um, burning. Go for it, Jenny. Yeah, starts burn, Get your burning on. chicken bones. Yeah. They don't burn. Yeah. A lot of weird shady shit happened well, that the night. The fact that the fucking fire department it took seven hours to go two and a half miles. Well, that's one thing. But also, when they run outside, they all run outside, right? And then that night, George, the father, runs back inside because he wants to go upstairs to help the kids because right. they're not coming out. Um the stairs are all on fire, so we can't. So he goes outside, and usually they left their ladder right by the window, like, of the kid's yeah. window in the attic. The ladder was gone. It was disappeared. So then he goes, and he tries to um, start his trucks. He had two cars, yeah. or a truck and a car or something like that, and they were both in perfectly fine working condition, and they wouldn't, neither of them would start. What? Yeah. Um, they were convinced, like, that these kids were kidnapped. So why would they be kidnapped? Like, what? What's the motive? Exactly. So a little background on George and Jenny. George Sauter had immigrated from Italy. Mm-hmm. Um, and Fayetteville, where the Sauters lived in West Virginia, had a small but really engaged Italian immigrant community. George was very vocal in this community, mm-hmm. especially about his disdain for Mussolini. Sure. Um, so he sparked a few hatred debates in the community. He also reportedly never revealed why he left Italy, which is kind of sketchy. Wait, so are, are, is this like debates in the in the uh, community? Like, what are they like? Mussolini? Well, Mussolini was a um, a fascist. Oh, and they were they like into it and. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. The community, I mean... I'm going to get another drink. Keep talking. Yeah, will you... Yeah, do you want more ice? A little more um, vodka? Yeah, of course. Of course. (laughs) Just more vodka? A little splash? Sure. And maybe like a little more lemonade? Have you ever... Just what we did make the drink? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so some curious occurrences that happened Mm -hmm. around this possible kidnapping. If that's what we want to call it. Sure. Um, in the fall, this is so weird. In the fall, just before the fire, uh, a life insurance salesman came to the house and tries to sell a Georgia before, policy. Before, before the fire in Christmas. This is, yeah. Okay. This is the fall before. Okay. So like a couple months before. Yeah. Um, and he ended up not getting the sale. 
this insurance guy literally yells at George and says, and I'm going to quote him, your goddamn house is going up in smoke. (laughs) Okay. And your children are going to be destroyed. You're going to be paid for the dirty remarks you have been making about Mussolini. End quote. So this life insurance salesman... Not only didn't get the sale, but he was like... His ass was chapped about... His, he already didn't like the guy. His hero, Mussolini. Cool. Your yeah. house is going up in flames. All right. Sounds like a confession to me. Um, mm, sounds very specific. <laughs> yeah. Sounds so specific. <laughs> um... Okay, so in the days leading up to the fire, two of the surviving Sauter sons witnessed a man watching a younger man watching the younger Sauter children come home from school on Highway 21. Wait, so in, um, a man was watching a man watching the children? The older brother of the Sauter family was uh-huh. watching a man watching oh. the younger Sauter okay. kids. I was about to say, there's a lot of looky-loos around there. <laughs> <laughs> looky-loos. A lot of watching going on. I know. <laughs> Like, keep your eyes to yourself. Take a picture. It'll last longer. Jeez. <laughs> oh, okay. So another thing that the fire chief said was, or the fire marshal, or whatever his name is, he said um, that the fire was probably caused by faulty wiring. Um, it was the 40s. But so. that would have meant that there wouldn't have been power to the house. But the lights were on when the oh. house was on fire. Jenny and George both specifically remember that. So they were basically, like, doing their own investigation. Crime scene investigation, Because team. no one was um, helping them out. And it could have been... Because it was annoying? Well, maybe because of the Mussolini thing. Okay. Because it was, a, like, a community of fascists. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, I can see that. Yeah. So, let's see. And then the fact that his trucks were working that night and the ladder was gone, like, it was a very... There's just a lot of did shady they shit. Find, did they investigate the trucks? Like, No, they didn't investigate the trucks. Well, why the hell not? I know. I guess they... You, I don't know. You know what? This is their first, you know, attempt at a CSI investigation, yeah. so you can't think of everything. Exactly. You know? I know. Mm, a for effort, guys. They, should, chicken, uh, they got the chicken bones. Ma- they didn't do the trucks. <laughs> I know. Duh. Oh, God. So close. Um, no. <laughs> so close. After the fire, when the family visited the memorial, George had set up. Sylvia, who, remember, at the time she was two years old, Uh um, at the time of the fire, she found a hard rubber object in the yard, an object that Jenny, the wife, believed may have caused the loud bang that woke her up that night. But what's even more interesting is that after further investigation from George, like he took this object and looked looked at it and studied it, he thought it was a a napalm bomb. What? Or a pineapple bomb. Huh. Yeah. So... That they threw on the roof? Yeah. So he believes that someone threw a bomb. Okay. uh, Or kidnapped the kids and then threw a bomb. Okay. Yeah. Another weird thing. There have also been reported sightings of the children. Ew, weird. I know. One occurred that night while the fire was still burning. A woman claimed to see the children in a car that drove by while the fire was still raging. 50 miles west of Fayetteville, a woman who operated a tourist stopped told police that she saw the children the morning after the fire. Quote, I served them breakfast. There was a car with a Florida license plate at the tourist court, too. End quote. And then years later, let me, hold on, let me pull this up. This is so weird. I know. 
1968, Jenny found a letter in her mail which was addressed to her with no return address. It was postmarked in Central City, Kentucky. There was a photo of a man in his 30s. Inside of it... Because that, be, that would be like 23 years later. Yeah. There was a message. said Luis Sauter, who was one of the five kids that disappeared. I love brother Frankie, Lil Boys, A90132, or possibly A90135. Wait, what? Read that again for me. Luis Sauter. I love brother Frankie, Lil Boys, A90132, or possibly A90135. So that's all it said. Just like that. Oh. Written in the back. Weird. Or on the back, yeah. Is Luis one of the kids? Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. So the picture had a strong resemblance with Luis. So they pri- they hired a private detective to go to the central city and do further investigation where the letter had come from, right? Yeah. But the weird thing is this private investigator was never heard from after he left West Virginia. To go look mm-hmm. where the... He just, he just went appeared. on the errand. They never and heard never from him out. again. Ugh. Yeah. Weird. Yeah. Ooh, that gives me the creeps. Unfortunately, George, the father, died a year later in 1969, and then Jenny died 20 years later in 1989. Wow. Yeah. Who was the woman on the phone? Who removed the ladder? Um, What happened to the truck? What happened to the children? If the children didn't perish in the fire, where did they go? Um, And why wouldn't they, after, you know, decades... Uh, being adult ever reach back out to their parents right why was there no sign of bones how could it be a wiring problem if the christmas light stayed on throughout the beginning phase of the fire why didn't either of the trucks start that night so yeah it's still so so i mean that's it that's it they're just they disappear we have no idea where they are what about the... But everyone in the family believes that they were kidnapped. Sylvia, I think... Um, I don't know how old she is now. Let's see. 45. Oh, fuck. Mm-mm. We're not doing that work. She's but... an old lady now. Yeah. <laughs> She's old. <laughs> but, yeah, she still believes that they were kidnapped. Oh, my god. Maybe kidnapped and killed. But, yeah. Oh. So they're gone. They gone. They gone, girl. Well, guys, I hope you got freaked out. No. Hope you're scared. Hope you're scared. Yeah. Happy weekend. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So, all right. Well, okay. anyways, all right. Send us off. Okay. We love you guys. God bless and trust no one. Trust no one. Bye-bye. Bye. I felt very sensual saying that. That was very good. Was it? Mm-hmm.